In his uh, best-selling book titled Into Thin Air, John Krakauer tells the story of an expedition to the summit of Mount Everest in 1996. And in the book, he mentions that a member of the expedition, uh, one of the members of the expedition was named Yasuko Namba. Miss Namba was a 46-year-old Japanese FedEx employee who had a passion for climbing. She was an accomplished climber, having reached the summits of seven of the largest mountains in the world. And the only one left for her to conquer was Mount Everest, the tallest in the world. She desperately wanted to get to Everest and the top of it as well. This was her goal, so much so that Krakauer observed, who was a member on that expedition in 1996, that she was totally focused. It was almost as if she was in a trance. She would push extremely hard, often jostling her way past everyone to the start of the line. She wanted to get to the top. Later that day, she did. She made it. She accomplished her goal. She was the oldest person ever to make it in, to the highest point in the world at that time. Later, however, that afternoon, Yasuko and a number of the other climbers were caught in a blizzard. And as the winds blew, Yasuko fell ill and became unresponsive to treatment. She succumbed to the cold and the exhaustion of her climb and froze to death. She got to the top and then passed away agonizingly close to that top. And as Krakauer observes, I think that he thinks that that may give insight to her mistake. According to Krakauer, fatal, her fatal flaw was that she adopted the wrong goal. Yasuko's goal had been to get to the top of the mountain. What she wanted the most uh, uh, for her to do was to stand at the top of the world and all of her country cheered her on while she did. But Krakow said that was the wrong goal. And it's a frequent and often fatal mistake that many climbers make, he observed. Because the goal of climbing is never get to, to get to the top of a summit. Successful climbers know that the goal is not to get to the top. It is to get back down to the bottom. It's not a one-way trip. It is a round trip that is the goal. If you're just joining us, we're in the middle of a series looking at a, a church in the city of Philippi in the first century that was undergoing enormous pressure from persecution. And yet the church planter and apostle Paul, as he was writing them from house arrest in prison, was so proud of them for the way that they were thriving under those difficult circumstances. And if they can thrive under persecution just for being Christians, then they've got some things to teach us about how we can thrive in the difficult and stressful situations that we are facing. And that church has something to teach our church 
in the difficult and stressful situation that it's in and is about to be in. Last week, we started off a new section of the letter talking about how we needed to put the interests of others ahead of our own. And we noted that, well, that's actually easier said than done. So how do we begin to put that into practice? And Paul instructs those believers, and I think God instructs us, that there is a level of sacrifice that we are called to that no one else can do except a Christ follower. And that is to give to others what they need, even if we need it too. Whew. That was hard to say last week, let alone this week. That's the level of sacrifice that he calls us to. But Paul goes on and says, but I want to caution you in that thinking because that is not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is not just to get a rush from being on that pinnacle or mountaintop of, hey, I know I needed this, but I gave it away and it helped them and what a rush I feel. I mean, there is more. We still need to get back down the mountain. And I think we know this intrinsically, especially if you tried to apply that this week, to give to others what they need even if you need it too. You may have run into a, an intellectual roadblock. I know I did. And that was, so who determines what they need? Who determines what people need? I mean, what someone says they need may not be something that's actually good for them at all. And we know that because sometimes we don't know what we need and sometimes we want things that aren't good for us at all, but we still want them, right? That's why we go to doctors. Sometimes we don't have the insight to know how is it that we can be healthy? How is it that we can uh, get rid of the sickness or the ailment or the concern that we have? How do we deal with this? And they have some expertise that can tell us how to do that. And we know that other people often think they know what they need and then tell us that's what they need and we know that they actually need something different. So how do you give them what they need even though that's not something that they say they need? Does that make sense? Let me put it to you this way. Have you ever had children? Do you know people with children? Have you ever tried to feed them vegetables at dinner time? Have they ever said that they don't want those vegetables? Absolutely. I mean, other people's kids have done that, not your kids. Other people's kids have probably said that. And they will say things like, I don't want that. I want the chocolate cake for dessert. That's the thing I want. That's the thing I want to enjoy. Don't give me these vegetables. I want the cake. And then the bargaining starts. Well, if you eat half of your vegetables, you can have a little bit of cake. Well, what if I ate a quarter of the vegetables? Could I have three quarters of cake? If they're older children, they may start to tell you how healthy cake is. You know, there's milk and there's, there's eggs and there's butter and all of those things are good for you. They just happen to be mixed together with about three pounds of sugar. But let's ignore that part. That's just a delivery mechanism. You're still getting those healthy things, so let's eat the whole cake for the main course and then have the vegetables later if we're still hungry, right? That's what kids do. But we know that 
there are different things that they need that they may not like and they decide that they don't need them. And I'll admit there are times that there's things that I need that I don't like so I just try to work around them as much as I can. And when you combine that with the fact that sometimes we don't even know what we need at all, how on earth can we know what someone else needs? We need an expert. We need a physician. We need a great physician to tell us what we need. And thankfully, we have one. Just like a parent who knows when it's time to eat the vegetables that maybe we don't like, we have a heavenly father who knows what we need to eat and what we need the most. And we can use that as a way to know what other people need the most as well. And if you've got a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Because it's there at the beginning of chapter 3 that we start to see what Paul says this church needs, if I'm going to help you, if I'm going to protect you, if I'm going to keep you thriving, if I can encourage you, then here's some things that you need to have that they may not have known. Because I do know that when you help people, when you serve them, when you sacrificially serve them, that's a rush to know that someone is so thankful and you've helped them. But that's only the pinnacle of the mountain. And Paul knew that the Philippian church needed to come back down. And God knows that we need to do the same as this church thrives by giving others what they need even when they need it themselves. We still have to come down the mountain as well. And there's two things that we need to know that will protect us so that we get down from the mountain. How do we protect this church? How do we protect one another? How do we encourage other Christians? First of all, Paul says, let's remind each other not to fall away into the trap of legalism. Let me show you. It says here in the first verse of chapter 3 of Philippians, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. So this is something that he's already told them. He's just reminding them. You've got to keep this the main thing. You've got to keep the main thing the main thing, as they say. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. This is going to protect you. This is going to help you get down from the mountain, the pinnacle of giving others what they need even when you need it. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I, have re my, I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, and as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. 
What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Philippians 3, 1 through 9. I made a typo there. Paul is warning the congregation about a group of people that he's not too fond of. Some enemies that he's kind of cautioning people to be careful about. Mutilators of the flesh, he calls them. They're a group of people called Judaizers that we've, if you know your Bible, if you know your New Testament, you kind of know the story of how they followed, along, followed Paul along and went into churches after he left them and told them this, that Jesus is a great start. Jesus will get you to the starting line, but he won't get you to the finish line. No, 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 no. You have to consider everything that the people of God before Jesus practiced. Ah, that'll make you even more spiritual. That'll even make you better. You had to follow the food laws that the Jews practiced. And most specifically, if you really wanted to know you were saved, you had to be circumcised. That would clearly be an indication that who's in, who's out. I don't think circumcision is a huge, big problem in our society today. I don't think we hear of a lot of a group of, of Jewish people coming into Christian churches when their leaders transition on to other churches and they come in and say, by the way, Jesus is the good starting point, but let's get you the rest of the way, so you, let's start practicing all of the Jewish food laws and all of the Old Testament laws because God gave those too and you should follow them and, and you need to be circumcised as well, so let's get all the men to line up and let's have some uh, spontaneous surgeries. I don't think that's a danger today, right? Say amen. Men, say amen again. <laughs> right? I mean, that's just not going to happen. But here's my question. Does legalism happen today in the church? Are there groups of people who say that Jesus is the starting point, but if you're going to really be a Christian, you've got to do certain things? Do you think that's true? Do you think that happens today? I can tell you it does. I can tell you it changes from era to era and maybe decade to decade. But here's just a couple of examples that I've come up against in my lifetime. In the last 10 years, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, if you vote for whoever, then you can't be a Christian. And I heard it from people on the right, and I heard it from people on the left. I heard, how can they wear that? How can you wear something like that? A Christian wouldn't wear that. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe you remember some of the days when music was an issue. Certain kinds of music that people didn't listen to. 
And if you were part of the Christian camping crowd way back when, you don't even have to go back too far. You may remember a time that there was no swimming at the beach on Sunday because it's the Lord's Day. And you were just meant to sit around and be sweaty on those hot summer days at the camp or at the campground. I see some of those still today. I don't see other ones. I'm, I think one of the strangest ones, forms of legalism that I ever heard was sort of a passive-aggressive statement when I was first entering Bible college a number of years ago where uh, a leader in our denomination stated publicly in our church that he was proud of the Bible school students from his denomination who on the entrance exams, he had to do entrance exams to get into seminary at that time, and I still don't know how I got in, but I filled one out or they just stopped requiring them or something, but uh, at that time you had to fill out a, a, an exam to show how much Bible you knew, and this guy stated that he was so proud that the denomination uh, entries, kids from that denomination, were doing the best out of all the students, and I went, but that's just the beginning what what's the next part for them what like it i don't get why that's something to be proud of i guess legalism still exists so how does it come about how does it form let me posit to you just my idea um this isn't you know hard and fast rule but this is just my perception of how legalism starts I think personally we have practices that work for us maybe it's a way that we uh, a time of day that we pray a way that we pray um, a habit of reading our Bible at a certain time or with a certain people or maybe even reading a particular version of the Bible maybe it's um a practice where you go away every year to a Christian camp and that has been helpful as you've heard from different speakers who are uh, far higher profile and get to travel and they speak to you at a moment and that's meant something to you over the years I think what happens is that those things that we do that benefit us that help us in our spiritual growth and development and uh, being Christians are those things that we make into habits that we rely on too heavily. And we begin to say that if you don't do it this way, if you don't practice this way, if you don't do these good things like prayer, like studying your Bible and meditating on it, like fasting, like giving your time, serving, giving your resources through tithing, and then uh, serving others. If you don't do it like I do, or in the frequency that I do it, then you're not as advanced as me. I think that can come into our understanding of our practices, of how we follow Jesus. And what happens is, not only do we project those on other people and begin to evaluate how they're doing in their spiritual lives by how we practice those things, I think sometimes we start to feel guilty 
when we don't practice those things. Where we say, I'm going to commit, I'm going to read the Bible every morning, I'm going to get up a half an hour early before I have to, and I'm going to read the Bible and pray. And you do that for a little bit, and it's really good, and then it's not so good. Maybe you start sleeping in more. Maybe you start falling asleep while you're praying because it's early in the morning and it's hard. It's a discipline after all. And you start to be hard on yourself saying, what kind of a Christian am I? Why, how, why am I not committed? Why am I not better than this? And you look down on your own faith. I think that's how legalism starts to form. We become hard on others and we become hard on ourselves when we look at the ways people practice their faith. And this is the difference between faith in Jesus and legalism. Confidence of salvation in legalism comes from what we're doing. Confidence in Jesus comes because of what He has already done. When our faith feels better because we're serving, because we're giving, when we feel like we're more of a Christian because we're attending church, because we're sharing with others, you are on the border of legalism because you are about to start to put your faith in the things that you are doing and the things that you are accomplishing rather than the things that Jesus has done and accomplished. And Paul says be on guard for that and safeguard your fellow believers. Tell other people in your church, tell other Christians, help them. Make sure that they're not trusting in what they're doing but in what Jesus has done. I'll give you an example of how this works actually in an entirely different way. There's been a few times in ministry over my life that uh, I've had some uh, married couples come to me and say, hey, we're experiencing challenges in our marriage. Um, can you help us? And sometimes the other spouse, when they get told that the pastor now knows they're not really a willing participant in coming together and they want to maybe sort of point fingers and say, well, this is what she does or this is what he does. In those moments, one of the things that I love to do and I think is enormously helpful is to say, okay, I know you're kind of experiencing some challenges right now. Were those challenges always there in your life? And they'll say, no, it's just kind of recent uh, or it's been a few years and we just don't know how to handle it. It keeps coming back up. And my answer is, what was life like before? Well, what do you mean before? Well, tell me why you got married in the first place. Tell me what you saw in your uh, girlfriend. Tell me what you saw in your boyfriend that decided, I'm going to propose to them or I'm going to say yes to them. And there'll be this moment, if everything goes well in the counseling moment, if this works, what'll happen is, they'll start to think back to why they said yes. And of course, if they're really honest, it's because I'm really attracted to them. I mean, you should have seen them back then, or they still look like that. And I loved this about him, the way he made me laugh. 
I love this about her. She was always there caring and providing. When I was hurt, hurting, she was always the one who was able to talk me through what I was hurting about. Hmm. Okay, so here's your exercise, I would tell them. I want you to go home, and on your own, I want you to write down all the things that made you propose or made you say yes. And the next time we come back together, you'll share those with each other in the room. I love that exercise. Because what it does is it asks them to think about why they said yes in the first place. And I think that's what Paul wants us to do here. I think that's what Paul says when he says you're, com- you're comparing Christian activity to Christ. Think back to why you came to Christ in the first place. Why did you come to Christ? Because of what He has done. Because of how much He loves you because his sacrifice no matter how difficult your life was because of his promise for eternal uh, 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 salvation and for a chance to spend eternity in heaven with him you thought that is amazing that someone would do that for me I want that and then I would say so compare that to how good you feel about all the practices that you're doing and that you're putting your faith in now which is better and it re-sparks this, wow, it, it really is Jesus that I want. So Paul says, guard against legalism. Now, I know what you're thinking. So what about Christian morality? What about Christian ethics? What about Christian behavior? Are you saying that that doesn't matter? Of, of course not. I'm saying that it does matter. But it's interesting when we refocus and think back to why we said yes to Jesus in the first place, it changes our motivations of why we do Christian behavior, why we have Christian ethics, why we practice spiritual disciplines in the first place. I mean, take a look what Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 to an entirely different church. He said, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works we're not doing the good works to get to Christ Jesus it's the other way around and God has prepared those things in advance for us to do we do those things all of those practices because of Jesus because of what he says so I think we need to oftentimes when we get stuck with feeling why aren't people doing things the way that I'm doing? Or why aren't people voting the way that I'm voting? Or why aren't people agreeing with me on such critical issues? Why do they have these different opinions? I think it's important to get back to the main thing by thinking about Jesus, not about others, and refocus on why we said yes in the first place. And I think that allows us to be a little bit more gracious to others and gracious to ourselves when we fail to measure up to the things that Jesus wants us to do. So we help each other. We help each other do this. We do this for ourselves. And leaders, I think we help this church do that as well, to not fall into legalism and legalistic behavior. And I think that starts to flow into something else. 
Just like uh, every good football team has a great defense, they also have a great offense. They're moving the ball in a particular direction. And I think the way that we go on the offensive in the right direction that protects this church, that protects other Christians and protects ourselves so that we get back down from the mountain is by remembering that faith is not just an insurance policy for when we die. Faith is an invitation to enter into the most soul-satisfying relationship that we could ever have in our lifetime. Let me show you. Just to recap what we've already said a little bit, back to verse 8 of Philippians 3. What is more? Go back. Go back. Go back to the other slides. No, the other slides. The new ones. What is more? I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings. Becoming like Him in His death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I think we help protect each other and protect our church keeping the main thing the main thing by making sure that we don't fall into legalism. That's the defense. But the offense is that the appropriate response to salvation is a passionate, intimate relationship with Jesus himself. Paul says some interesting things here that might actually be a little confusing. Wait, you want to know Jesus in his death? That seems like you're, like you're intentionally trying to be a martyr. That means, that's kind of weird. Um, and he's saying he wants to know Jesus in his sufferings so that somehow he might attain to the resurrection. It seems all confusing. But that's because Paul is letting people peek into the deepest relationship that he, had, that he has with anyone. All of his accomplishments, we read, pale in comparison to knowing Christ. He wants to know Jesus so deeply, so badly, so closely, so intimately. He wants to know the love that Jesus has for him. And in some way, he wants to be able to return that love to him. Now you may think, we never hear anyone talk like that about Jesus today. I think we do. I'm not sure it's Jesus. To capture the emotion of what Paul is saying... 
What you need to recognize is that what Paul is writing are similar to wedding vows. Think about it. Maybe think back to your wedding, or if that's too long, just think back to a wedding that was recent. One of the things that happens is that the bride and the groom, the husband and the wife, they exchange vows to each other. And what do they say? Those vows may be, I take you, insert bride's name here, uh, groom's name here, to be my lawfully wedded wife or husband, to have and to hold for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, for sickness and in health until death do us part for as long as we both shall live. In other words, a man and a woman come together in front of the minister, in front of God, in front of family and friends and witnesses and declare their deep love for each other that no situation and no circumstance will ever separate them from and they are willing to prove that and know that and want to experience that with them no matter what comes. Of course, no one's thinking, please let us both get sick so we can know how much we really love each other. But isn't it interesting that some of the deepest ways love is expressed and experienced is when someone gives so much to us when we can give nothing in return? When our spouse is sick and they rally around us and they lead the charge to make sure that we're getting healthy and they're taking care of everything for you, don't you feel loved at that moment? When you're sitting there looking at the bills together at the kitchen table and you're wondering how on earth are we going to make it to the end of the month and your spouse looks across and says, don't worry, babe, we've got each other. And I will never, never walk away from you because of this. We've got this because we're together. Don't you love that? Don't you love that when you're wondering where the next job's going to come and your spouse comes along and says, hey, don't worry. God's got a great job for you and we're going to get through this together. And you struggle and you scrimp and you save and sometimes you argue just to see how it's going to work, but you fight through those things. Aren't those the times that you know that person loves you? Paul is writing wedding vows because he's seen Jesus go through hell for him that's amazing and if you wonder and have ever wondered because of the circumstances you're in does God really love me and I just want you to remember this verse the greatest demonstration that God has given us of love is that when we were his enemies he was willing to die for us so that we could become his children and that's what Jesus has done for you and me you know I think the challenge that we have as Christians is that we take a we want just a nice cordial friendship with Jesus we want Jesus to be like an in-law where they, you know, stay for a few days. But then they go home. They go to their own place. They let you get on with your life. 
We want Jesus to be like a contractor. You know, where we can say, Jesus, we've got some stuff that we need fixed in our lives. If you could just come in and tell us the price and we'll be willing to pay just that price and then you can go ahead and, and fix up this little part of our lives or our relationships or our finances or our future. If you could just take care of those things, then that'll be great. That's not what Paul wants for his church. That's not what God wants for you. When you think back and you remember why you said yes to Jesus, you can't help but notice the depth of his love. If you don't notice the depth of his love, you haven't looked back yet. But when you realize what he has done for you in spite of who you were, when I realize what he has done for me in spite of who I am, I can't help but be amazed at how much Jesus loves me. And Paul says, just like you would in a marriage, You've got to water your own garden. You've got to build that love relationship. Don't treat Jesus as a contractor. Your Savior is the lover of your soul, and there is no one who will love you more on this earth than Jesus Christ. And the proof is He was willing to die for you when you were still dead in your own sins. That's the Jesus you get to build an intimate, close relationship with you. And I think we need to remind ourselves of those things. These two things, these things that will safeguard this church, this church when I'm gone, safeguard this church when you're gone. safeguard each other and it will safeguard you so that as you serve Jesus and step up in ways in ministry that well maybe you never thought you'd actually do that's just the pinnacle still need to get back down the mountain you need to have the right goal. And you know that right goal when you refuse to fall into legalism towards others and towards yourself. And when you treat your Savior as the lover of your soul and build an intimate relationship with Him. That's the joy that we have that helped them to thrive and can help you to thrive and this church to thrive. Because you know for certain what waits for you at the end. Not because you scored enough points to get into the game. But because your salvation has been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. You can be confident in what he has done, not what you're doing. And you can know for certain by going beyond that transaction to the personal. We are the bride of Christ. Love him as such. Nurture a deep emotional love for him. And just like marriage, when you deepen your love for your spouse now, it will be an anchor when the storms of life come. Salvation? That's just the beginning.
Let's pray. With every uh, eye closed, I want to give those who, have, who are not certain, who are not certain that they've surrendered their life to Jesus Christ and know that love, who are not certain that they are building that love relationship with him to do just that, to pray a, a prayer of salvation and put their faith in him, I want to give you a chance to do that. So if that's you, if you're ready, if this is the time when you say, I want that, I now know how much Jesus loves me. I want that forgiveness. I want that eternal salvation. And you can pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. And yet you loved me so much that you died in my place. I believe that Jesus, in his death, paid the penalty for my sins. And I believed God, that you raised him to life. I put my faith in him, in his death, in his resurrection. And I ask for your help to build an intimate relationship with him and follow him forever as my Savior and Lord. Father, for those of us who are Christians, we may have been keeping you at arm's length like a, like a contractor or the in-laws that we don't like where you're okay to have around for a little bit or you're okay to have around when you're doing things for us, but we've not started or we've fallen away from building that love relationship with you. Would you forgive us? We ask your forgiveness. And we pray for your help in knowing and expressing the love that we should have for each other. Lord, we know that you love us. Help us to love you, to reflect that same love back to you. Even as you are the lover of our souls. May we love your soul above all else as well. We pray for your help to do that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.